All right, you ready to study God's Word? I'm going to back up just a little bit because I'm excited about this new month, this new series, and teaching you a little bit on what we've entitled, I Love God's Promises. All this year, we've been using the I Love series moniker on different themes in order to just get some foundational uh, stuff back into our system. And this month, April, is I Love God's Promises. Why don't we say that together? We're not a liturgical church, but sometimes I think it's good for us to just say some things together. Ready? I love God's One more time. I love God's promises. Don't you really? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of hard stuff in God's Word. I mean, there's some challenging things in the Bible that, of course, we take seriously. But when we find a promise from God, let me tell you, that's great because I love to get a hold of his promises. And so uh, this series idea, I believe, was God-directed. I, I believe everyone is. But it dropped in my spirit because this month is Resurrection Month. And that's the greatest promise of all as we focus on the promise of God's resurrection power and life. But I started to think of how God's word is packed with all sorts of promises when Jesus walked amongst us. He left us some incredible uh, promises that we need to be reminded of. As human beings, our tendency is to be problem-focused rather than promise-focused. Isn't that true? We're problem-focused rather than promise-focused. At least that's the way it is for me. It's because we're so knit into our circumstances, we're so knit into our humanity that it's easy to become consumed with what the problem is uh, instead of being reminded as to what his promise may be. And so I always find myself, I'm just kind of using this as a transparent moment, I find myself through the years, unknowingly at times, it's not like you plan this, but you just find yourself sliding into focusing on your challenges rather than focusing on God's promises. And the last several months in my household, uh, I'll just kind of give you a quick testimony here before we teach a little bit. The last several months in my household, we have made an intentional effort to stay laser-focused on God's promises. Let me tell you something, that is hard. (laughs) It is really hard to stay laser-focused on what God has said, what God has said in his word, what God has said maybe prophetically, what he has dropped into your spirit maybe in prayer. Hey, let me ask you something. Just as we're gathered here, do any of you have any hopes for the future? I mean, I'm, see, I'm seeing people nod their head. I see some hands raised. Does, can I just say, does everybody have a few hopes for the future? Okay, some aspirations. Could be anything. Maybe, maybe a, a, a better job, maybe... Uh, maybe some open doors, another opportunity. I don't know. It could be a hundred things that I can't even think of all of them at the moment. But you have hope and you have aspiration. A promise is when you read something in his word and God speaks to that. And, and he says, I, ag- I agree. The Lord says, I agree with that hope. That hope isn't just something you self-generated, but that hope is something that I really have for you. And I'm agreeing with that. 
And I want you to know that whether you have ever received a personal word, uh, by whether it's me or a prophet or a ministry, whether you have ever maybe heard something that you felt like was yours, maybe it came through prayer, I'm here to tell you God has some promises for each one of you, and you need, you need to just lay hold of that again. In fact, we just need to lay hold that God has some promises that he really wants to manifest. And again, the promises are cool because it blesses us, and obviously it, it provides an infusion of joy to think that God has, has blessed us in a certain way. But the fact of the matter is God fulfills his promises in order to make his name great. And I want his name to be great. That really is... I mean, call me selfish on occasion, but down in there, I really want God, his name, Jesus, his name to be great. And I want him to be great in my life. And so we need to be reminded, let God be true and every man a liar. Scripture says that. And I just want to take some time in the month of April to remind ourselves that not everything people say is true and not everything that people might say is the final say. I've had some wonderful prophetic words that have blessed me and encouraged me, and I've had some incredible word curses that have been cast over my life too. <laughs> you know, when people said you wouldn't amount to anything, you know, you're going to be on the backside of a desert forever. I mean, I could go through all the word curses. People say you're dumb, you're stupid, you'll never amount to anything. Hey, let me tell you, you may have word curses that have been thrown over your life, but right now we're breaking those, right? In Jesus' name. What man has said is a lie. What God says is true. And that's what we're going to be reminded of, the promises of God. So we're going to explore that, all the various promises in different ways and forms, but Today I want to talk about the promise of abundant living. This is where we're going to start as we move through Resurrection Month. The promise of abundant living, and I subtitled it, Raising Our Expectations. And I want to read to you John chapter 10, beginning with verse 7. It was mentioned at prayer time, by the way, Robert. You just you kind of touched on this at prayer time. So it gives me some confidence that, you know, we're talking where God wants us to be speaking. John 10, I'm going to begin reading with verse 7. And then I'm going to leap over to Ephesians 1 verse in chapter 3 verse 20. John 10 verse 7, here's what we read. It says, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Those are familiar words. Those of you that have been around the block should know those words fairly swiftly. Now, interestingly, Paul says something similar, and we'll find out just how similar in a moment, in Ephesians 3, verse 20. He's praying for the Ephesian church in chapter 3. It's a long prayer. In fact, interestingly, I remember years ago when we had to translate chapter 3 in my Greek class, and you find out, if you follow along, that Paul doesn't put a period in the whole chapter. He just puts commas. It's like just breathing marks. It's like, get your breath. I'm still going on. I'm still going on. We're not stopping yet. 
And so here in Ephesians 3.20, this is a cool verse. It says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. The promise of abundant living. It's time to raise our expectations. Now, in the Gospel of John, the passage that I read to you in chapter 10, Jesus was bantering again. If you'll fall back into chapter 9, he was bantering again with the Pharisees. Pharisees we commonly refer to as the religious leaders, although they had far more power than just religious power. They were civically uh, empowered as well. But he's bantering with them. He's bantering them in a rather lengthy account concerning uh, who people really needed to listen to and follow as well as the truth and validity of his ministry. And so in chapter 9, it all started when he heals this blind man. And this is the healing, if I'm not mistaken, where he actually uh, picks some, some clay up from the ground, he puts it in his eye, it's a recreative miracle, and he heals him, and everybody, well you should say some people are happy, especially the blind man, he's happy, but everybody else is aggravated. Now, why would you be aggravated because somebody got healed? Well, we find out that the reason they're aggravated is because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Oh, God forbid that you would heal on the Sabbath. And because he healed on the Sabbath, that supposedly violated uh, a rule or a law of the religious system. And, and let me just say at this particular point, it actually violated no law. It violated an interpretation their interpretation of the law, but it never violated a law. And so Jesus, though, uses this moment, as he always does, in order to teach a lesson to his disciples and to zip the Pharisees. And he springboards out of this, this guy's natural blindness, he springboards out of that problem to talk about a far more significant problem, and that is spiritual blindness. I think it was Helen Keller that once said, it's terrible to be blind, but it's even worse to have sight, but yet have no vision. And that's really what he's talking to the Pharisees. They could see in the natural, but they, they couldn't see in the spiritual. The blind guy, on the other hand, before he was healed, could see nothing naturally, but he understood spiritually. So Jesus, in a very real way, begins to spin this healing in order to talk about and challenge us as to how we're to focus and what we're to focus on. And interestingly, if you read chapter 9, you will see that Jesus was very clear about judgment and redemption. He wanted to be sure that people understood that he was the door, he was the way. There aren't multiple doors to get to God, there's one door to get to God and that's through him. He is the door. And so he, he wanted to be sure everybody understood uh, that point. But he also wanted to make sure that the disciples who were listening understood that the people of God mostly are promise, or excuse me, problem driven and, and not promise driven. And so when we get to chapter 10, he uses this illustration about sheep and shepherds and about who you should listen to. And he's clear that he is the voice, he says in this passage, he's the voice that you need to listen to because he's the one that will open the door to eternal salvation. And sticking with the analogy that Jesus is using, he says this, I will open the door, he says the sheep will come in, and then he says that as they come in, there'll be a great pasture for them to graze in. Isn't that great imagery? So 
I'm just kind of simply, I know this is simple, but let's just be real simple for a moment. Jesus is saying that there's a promise. Jesus is the door. There's a spiritual point of the promise, an eternal promise, as well as a temporal or natural possibility. And he's saying as you go through the door, obviously that door is the door that leads to eternal life. It's the door that will ultimately lead you to heaven. It's the door that will secure your future. But at the same time, he says that as the sheep go through that door, they will graze in good pasture. In other words, they're going to be somewhere where it's really good for them. How many of you know if sheep get in a good pasture, they're happy? Happy sheep. How many of you know God wants you and me to be happy sheep. And so he gets to the verse 10 and he begins to just remind them kind of how this all works in the famous passage of the thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy and what he has come to do. Now, let's, let's get some background to this. I want to talk for a moment about the original plan of God. All right, I'm going to I'm going to teach you. This is, this is kind of like your Sunday school lesson too, okay? So zero in. You're getting Sunday school and sermon all at once. Isn't that great that you can come to church and get both at the same time? You can get Sunday school and, and preaching all at once. Let's talk about the original plan of God. Back in Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, we begin to see, in fact, if there's any point to reading those first three or four chapters of the book of Genesis, it's this. You begin to see what God's original plan was for his people. His original intent was for his people. Now, I understand it got way messed up, way goofed up. It was fractured. It was sidetracked. It was derailed. It was detoured. But he had an original intent, and we've got to understand what that intent is to understand why redemption is so important. God created Adam and Eve, and every need that Adam and Eve would have was to be met in him. In other words, they had no worries. It was so simple, it was so innocent. I mean, for us in our fallen minds, when we begin to think about two people, there was no need to be clothed, there was no need to be concerned about working, there was no need to be concerned about tending uh, to anything, at least it appears, there was just simplicity to it all. It, it, it seems unimaginable to us, but the point was that their needs were to be met in Him. In fact, the only thing that was forbidden to them was that he had planted two trees. One tree was the tree of life, which there was no command to stay away from. But the second tree was the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. You remember that, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now he said, everything you can partake of, but this tree you can't get your fingers in. Now remember, let's just remember, one tree, tree of life. Everyone say life life, and one tree, knowledge of good and evil. Well, we're going to do theology now. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the tree that was placed in the garden that would forever be before Adam and Eve so that they would make the choice to respond to him, desire to have their need met in him and through him. You see, the only way freedom to be true is when you have an opportunity to go another way. If there's never an opportunity to do what's wrong, then you never really have true freedom. Because if, if your life is simply created that you have to make this particular choice and it will always be the perfect choice, then what you are is a robot or a puppet, one or the other. 
And so there was this tree that existed there of knowledge of good and evil. And it was a tree that it was forbidden to touch. And, and, and it shouldn't have been a hard command because I suspect there were thousands of other trees that they could have touched. Have you ever been with your kids or when you were raising children? You remember when there's a thousand toys in their toy box and there's only one thing in the house that you look at them and say, I don't want you to touch this. You can touch anything else, but please don't touch this. There is something magnetic in that one thing to their little brain. It's like it sucks them in. It's, 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 it's like they can't see the thousands of things they can do. They just see the one thing that they can't do. And apparently that was a little of what was going on here. Of course, there was a serpent in the garden that was making it even harder as he's beginning to talk and solicit and to entice. I still think the serpent's around today as he entices us to, to things we ought not be a part of. And so he's, he's soliciting first the woman, Eve's, you know, Eve's nature to come and partake. And now here's, here's the problem. The problem with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was this, that once they partook of it, the enemy tells them this, and it is true to an extent, that at that moment their eyes would be opened. And they would begin to see. In fact, he said you would even be like God. You'd begin to see. And, and, and the key to all of this is that once they partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and their eyes were open, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, within themselves, they began to determine what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was evil. Every, up to that point, everything they knew had to be found in him. In other words, they knew everything that was good, they understood because God told them what was good. Everything that was wrong, it came from God. They, they, they had no other, no other pipeline except through him. But the instant they grabbed of that fruit, all of a sudden, their opinion, their knowledge, their understanding, their evaluation, all of their thoughts suddenly became the center of their universe. Their life that was intricately bound to him once they ate the fruit, changed. Suddenly their life was intricately tied to their perspective. Now make sure you're following me. The reason all of us are in that predicament is that we are usually convinced that we know what's best, we know what we need, we know what we think is right, and to the unsaved, that is radically different than the saved. But even for those of us who claim Christ as Savior... We partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil regularly ourselves because we think our perspective must be God's perspective. But here's the deal. We need to be reminded that there are two trees from which we can eat. We either eat of the tree that says, I, I understand what everything's going on. I can see. I can evaluate. I'm going to make my own judgments. Or we eat from the tree that brings life. In other words, God-type life inside of us. Jesus reminds us that Genesis taught through him we are promised life. His life would flow to us. In fact, the word life in the Greek actually means all of life physically and spiritually. So when we partake of life, everything we need naturally, everything we need spiritually flows through him in order that all of these needs can be met. But just like the serpent did to Eve, we have an adversary that seeks to detour us from that reality and perspective. And so 
Let's talk about the job description of the thief because what Jesus says here is this. He says there's going to be a thief that's going to come your way and his job is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now let's talk about who this thief is and a little bit about what he does and how he does it. Some have suggested that the thief are these false teachers and religious leaders that Jesus is interacting with in John 9 and 10. In fact, many believe that's exactly who he's zipping at this particular point. He's saying these false teachers that you're hearing are actually detouring you from what it is God would have for you and all they're doing is stealing, killing, and destroying. And that's probably true. Most of us have come to understand that the author of that thievery is the devil himself. Both of these things can be true as they seek to divert your attention from what God has said by way of promise. Now, it's interesting. I'm going to do a little word study here, and uh, hopefully this will be as meaningful to you as it was to me. In the original language, the word thief means this. Interesting. It means the one who steals in secret and moves by stealth rather than open violence. It's the one who steals in secret and moves by stealth rather than open violence. In other words, he's unexpected. Isn't that true how the enemy works? He never comes. It's not like he comes with a pitchfork and his red suit and a pointy tail. And he says, here, here I am, I'm the devil. I'm going to mess you up. That's not how he comes. He always comes in secret. He moves by stealth, unexpectedly. That's how the enemy works. In fact, Paul would later elaborate, he said that, that the enemy comes as an angel of light. Isn't that interesting? An angel of light. In other words, it can even look right. It can feel right. It can seem right. But it's the enemy. And so the word, there's actually three words here. The first word is the word steal, which means to take unexpectedly. To take unexpectedly. Now, I believe the application is, is that the enemy has come to do this in your life. He wants to create lack he wants to evaporate your resources, and he wants to diminish your opportunities. Hear me when I say this. I'll say it again. The enemy wants to create lack in your life, to evaporate your resources, and to diminish your opportunities. He wants to shut you down. Steal. The second thing it says is that he wants to kill. The original language to kill, actually interesting, is like to kill as a sacrifice or to make an offering. In fact, if you follow its... It's history. It means to breathe hard or to blow smoke. Now, I wasn't quite sure what it meant to blow smoke, except as it was related to the offering. And I honestly think that the enemy wants to make an example of you. He wants to, to, to bring you to a place where you are made an example of in what he does in your life. He wants, I just put down here by way of application, to reduce longevity. In other words, he wants to kill you before you've lived the fullness of your days. He wants to shorten your life through sickness or disease or, or worry about those things. Worry can shorten our lives too. But he wants to make an example of you in order for you to live in anxiety and worry in order that he can sort of magnify what his abilities are in your life. You know, every time we worry and we fear and we get into those anxious moments, we're, a we're actually a billboard for the enemy. I'm just telling you what God sort of has showed me. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to fake it, but it does mean that you need to get before the Lord so he can, he can take it and, and you can find his peace. And the third thing it says that the thief does is to destroy, literally meaning to fully destroy 
or to permanently destroy. And out of those first two, he wants to extinguish your dreams, your future, and the relational networks to fulfill those things. He wants to destroy everything around you so you cannot fill the plan and the purpose of God, which was not only to magnify the name of the Lord, but was probably to prosper your hands or to resource your hands and in order to be a blessing to your household. Now that's the, the job description of the enemy. The job description of the enemy, interestingly, keep this in mind, the job description of the enemy is, is not that he uses most of his time on the world because the world is blind. The world cannot see. The world cannot hear. The world is already in a place where its sin is bringing its own destruction. It says the wages of sin is death. The way of the transgressor is hard. And so a person who knows not the Lord is already facing difficulty and challenge and destruction just by virtue of just by virtue of their state of not being redeemed by the Lord. So hear me when I say this. The enemy isn't working on the world. The enemy works primarily and with priority upon us. Because we're the ones that can do damage to his kingdom. The world can't do damage to his kingdom. They propagate his kingdom. They, they continue his kingdom. But you and I, we're different. We do damage to his kingdom. So therefore, he's a thief to us and he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's why you don't cut deals with the enemy. That's why you don't make deals with the devil. This, this is why we do warfare against the enemy. It's because he wants, he's not just wanting to harass you, he's wanting to kill you, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his plan. His plan isn't just to make you have a hard day. His plan is to kill you. That's where, that's where sin always leads is to death. Now, Jesus comes along he takes on the false teachers, and now he begins to give his purpose and promise. Jesus' purpose and promise. God's plan was to redeem man from their sin and rebellion and restore the promise of what? What tree is this? Tree of life, exactly. He's come to restore life. He wants us to live in his life. He wants life to flow, life from Him to flow in us. And hear me when I say this, it wasn't just the get-by type of life. You know, some people get by, other people really live. And Jesus wasn't wanting His people to have a get-by type of life, but He says that you might have life, and then He adds on to it, and that more what? Abundantly. Abundantly. It means, I'm just telling you what the words he used meant, it means super addition, uncommon, beyond measure, greater, excessive advantage, beyond what was anticipated, exceeding expectations, going past the expected. All of these adjectives and phrases are words that Jesus was saying. He was saying, when you know me, there is a distinct advantage to living. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times I don't feel that way. Now, hear me when I say this. I feel like I got a crosshair on me from the enemy. Has anybody else ever felt that way? It's like you look at your neighbor who doesn't love Jesus. They aren't serving God. They're doing everything wrong. And it seems like everything's okay in their life. But why is it my life? that has all these challenges. We'll go back to what I originally said. The enemy doesn't have to mess with them because they're already 
ensnared. He messes with you because you're the only one that can do damage to his kingdom. But Jesus says there ought to be, and I brought to pass, life in such a way that there will be a distinct advantage that should be taking place in your life. It should exceed expectations. Now hear me, if it exceeds expectations, that means there at least should be an expectation. Do you expect? Do you believe? Do you anticipate? I was thinking about this. You know, it doesn't happen all the time, but on occasion, if I have to jump on an airplane, they'll give me an upgrade. Has anybody else got an unexpected upgrade, like on an airplane, or maybe you rented a car? There's some some folks here. Maybe you got an upgrade. Now, Whenever I get an upgrade, it's always a great thing. And I'm appreciative of it. But honestly, I don't, I, at least for years, I never went into the airport anticipating upgrades. I anticipated I was going to get the seat that was on my sheet, on my boarding pass. That, that's what you think. But here's the deal. Jesus said this. He said that I've come to give you life and upgrade life. Now, here's the question. The question is, do you just anticipate life to be kind of like what's ever been dealt? Or do you anticipate or do you expect that Jesus is going to come along and give you some upgrades? Now, this is really an important question. Because it's easy to slip back into, well, you know, this is life. This is where I'm at. This is just how it works. It shall always be this way. I don't see it ever changing. Therefore, I'm just going to believe what's on the boarding pass. This is my seat. I might as well sit in it, get used to it. I'm suggesting to you today that it is time we started walking into life expecting some upgrades. Anticipating some upgrades. The Ephesian church apparently had fallen into that exact sort of mentality. Now, the Ephesian church was in an incredibly challenging situation. They had heathen temples and and all the pagan activity that was going on. The church, you know, it had some effectiveness, but obviously there was a problem that was beginning to manifest itself because this is what Paul said. He said, I'm going to begin to pray for you certain things. He said that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened that the greatness of your calling would be revealed to you. He Go down and read what all he begins to pray for them. And one of the things he begins to pray is what I read to you, that God would do that which was exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think. Think about that, that God would want to do that. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and get some upgrades in that life. That there should be a distinct advantage for you as, as far as being a Christian. Think about, think about just the gifts of the Spirit. If the gifts of the Spirit entail all of those particular gifts that could manifest at any time in my life according to His will, think about the things that God could drop in me that would give me a distinct advantage, give you a distinct advantage over everyone else who does not know Him. Here's the key to it all, though. I've come to this conclusion, and it's this. We no longer expect any upgrades. We no longer anticipate that God can do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or think. We don't believe that there's an excessive advantage. We don't 
believe any longer that we can see something beyond what we anticipate, a super addition, something uncommon. But I believe that's where biblical hope comes in. Hope isn't in the Bible. Hope is never wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is confident expectation. So when we say we have a hope, we have a hope in God. Our hope in God isn't this wishful thinking that maybe he's there. That's not what it is. When my hope is in God, it's not like, well, maybe he hears me. That would be nice, you know, if he really was there. That's not what the Bible means by hope. When the Bible says hope, it means that we have a confidence that when I pray, he hears. That when I die, he is there. That my foundation and my futures are secure in him. And a confident hope means that I can have an expectation. Is it not true that if I'm a Christian and I die, I have a legitimate expectation that when I die, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. That's not wishful thinking. That's not some sort of mystery that maybe if everything shakes out right, it'll happen. I can know. Why? Because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And we translate the eternal into the temporal. And so we begin to have a hope that where we are at this moment is not where we're going to cross our finish line. God has more. His future is bright. We need to anticipate. We need to expect. We need to believe. We need to have that hope that He gives life and that more abundantly. I'll finish with this. Years ago, if you've never read this book, this is another book you can read. It's by Paul Paul Youngi Cho. You probably remember Cho. He used to pastor Soulful Gospel Church in Korea. And he wrote the, fir- the fourth dimension. Now, if you go Google this, you're going to find all sorts of people who are going to cast all sorts of aspersions upon it. And I just encourage you just to leap over all of that. Because he says some things in there that are really important. And one of the things, and I remember that he wrote in his book, and years ago, I was out in Baton Rouge at a, at a large conference, and Cho was there. I don't know if Cho's alive still or not. He'd have to be a super old guy by now. But at that time, he was still traveling around, and he spoke at this conference. And he was talking, he was talking about, about letting your confession match your faith and belief and your expectation. And he was really zeroing in on that. And that that faith to be faith has to have an anticipation and an expectation. And how whatever you say out of your mouth has to match whatever's in your heart. In fact, the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so most of the time we don't think about it, it just flows. And if you just listen to yourself talk, after a while you can find out what's really in your heart. But sometimes what you can do is when you hear something and it's not what it should be, you can you can you can exercise your will and change what's in your heart by changing your confession and letting your confession, your mouth, match the faith in your heart and then let your hope arise that to begin to expect what it is that you're saying, not based on just what you think, but based on what God has said. You know, God has said certain things, hasn't he? Hasn't he, has he not said in Deuteronomy 28 that we're to be the head and not the tail? Did he not say that? That's not, I didn't say that. God said that. Did he not say we were to be above and not below? 
We're to be blessed going in and going out. We're to be blessed in our baskets and our barns. That if the enemy came against us one way, he would scatter in seven ways. I mean, you read Deuteronomy 28, those first 11 passages, and these are things that God says about you and me if we'll obey the voice of the Lord. That's the condition. That we're obeying what it says in his word. He says, these are the things that I will do. In other words, he will give you a distinct advantage. So we commit ourselves to obedience and we can begin to anticipate or expect that God will begin to do this. Now let's be honest. You, me, all of us have been so tied to reality and reason that all this stuff slips away. All of it just gets off our radar. We just start confessing where we are. Life is hard. It's always going to be this way. It's cruddy. It's this, it's that. And, And we slip into this. But these last few months... The Lord has just quickened me and quickened our household to this reality again. And and he brought it back to me through Cho's message at that conference years ago in, uh, in Baton Rouge. And he just used this simple illustration. He said early in his life, uh, he just found himself in a position where he didn't believe people liked him or uh, that he could in any way have relationship and so he just said i just started making this confession people like me people like me and he said i made it thousands of times people like me people like me now i know that it 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 sounds silly or repetitive or whatever it is to the natural mind but he just kept saying it until finally guess what happens your confession begins to change your expectation and your hope. And suddenly, what you've made confession of begins to take place and you begin to see it manifest all around in your house. And we've just begun, we just dusted off a lot of personal prophecies and we've dusted off some corporate prophecies for legacy. And I'm telling you, you know, it's easy to get tied to reality. What the challenge is is to be spiritual and get tied to what God has said. Now, here's the deal. You've got to find out what God has said for you. Now, some of what God has said is right in his word. You can go to his word and you can find all kinds of things. In other words, one of of the things he said to all the people that stood here for healing, let me just tell you, the Bible says that by his stripes you were healed. In other words, your healing's already come. The question is, do you anticipate it? Do you expect it? It's not wishful thinking. You have to say, I was prayed for. I came with a genuine heart. I believe God will do this. Therefore, I'm anticipating healing coming my direction. And I'm going to be healed. You, you, you may say, well, you know, I'm, I'm still sniffing and blowing my nose. And the doctor said this and this. Listen, and if you want to believe that, that's fine. I'll tell you where I am. I've, I've got to believe something that will endure forever. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. So I say what he says. And if we begin to anticipate and we begin to say that, hear me now, this isn't just for us, as important as that is. This is for you. Some of you are ready for breakthrough too, but we just got to get, we got to get back to what we know. And I I would imagine just looking across this room, everyone, everyone knows. I'm not saying something you don't know. I'm reminding you of something that we must do. And that is we must anticipate and expect that God has 
some upgrades. How many want a God upgrade? I wanted some God upgrades in my life. I want, yes, Lord. I want some God upgrades. I want life and that more abundantly to come through so that your name may be made great. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Stand with me, will you? Upgrades.